Welcome to the Yellow Brick Therapy Podcast, episode number 10. I had the pleasure of interviewing Lisa Butler, who's been a therapist since 2008 and has worked in both private practice and is now working at Catholic Charities in downtown. She is duly licensed in the state of Kansas as both a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist and also a licensed clinical addiction counselor. We talked about so many amazing things during this podcast, perfectionism, our own journey with that, an expanded definition of of addiction, and I am so excited to share this with you guys. So let's go ahead and tune in. All right, so we're going to start off with the first four. What did you want to be when you grew up? So probably from... Um the earliest ages, what I always knew, um, when you think about what are you going to be, what are you going to do? I was going to be a wife and a mom. Mm. Um, I came from a, a big family and, um, just that was, I don't know. That was what I knew. That was what I felt in my, you know, from my depths that that was what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted. That's what it met. That mattered more than anything else. Yes. And you, and you are a wife and mom now, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my husband and I have been married, gosh, 14 years and, um, we've got three kiddos. Um, the girls are both in middle school, so they're 13 and almost 12. And then my little man is five. Aw, awesome. So two girls and a little boy. So you definitely, that's neat that you're like able to be like, I got to do the thing that I knew that I wanted to do and and be. Um, And so how did that lead you into, you know, becoming a marriage and family therapist? Well, you I, uh, obviously you graduate high school and and you're like, okay, my goal is to be a wife and mother. Mm -hmm. I can't just sit around. (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm going to, you know, go to, go to college, experience life and, um, and I'm thrifty enough that I wasn't going to just waste money in school. So if I was going to go to school, I was going to do something that I knew would benefit me no matter what. Mm-hmm. So, um, and those early psych classes kind of just intrigued my interest and, and, pers- and realized, okay, well, understanding people, mm-hmm. understanding how families work, understanding myself is going to benefit me no matter what. Um, and then I had heard, um, cause I went to Newman right across the street was the MFT program at friends was just kind of getting started at that point, I think, or it hadn't been around very many years. Um, and so that was kind of an, even from the beginning before I really knew what my undergrad major was going to be, I had an idea of a master's degree. So in a way I kind of worked backwards of, of going, okay, if I'm going to, do that for a master's, what's the best undergrad to do that? And I ended up at Mm K-State, um, after a series of events, ended up at K-State in family studies and human services. And that's like directly like, you know, we were talking about this earlier, but that's directly like a route into MFT is what you said. Oh yes. Yeah. It it very much did. Um, because we had all the same professors as Mm -hmm. the MFT program and many of our um, the, more of those entry-level classes were taught by the MFT graduate students. Mm-hmm. So as they were learning, they were teaching us. And 
Um, I even got to help with some of their research um, as part of an honors program that I, I was a part of there. Cool. That's awesome. So you really got to delve into it a little bit before even getting into a master's program and you kind of had you've already had a taste of it and the seeds were planted for you so that just kind of oh sure you know gracefully led into it it sounds like actually it really helped me when I came to to friends um that I had had family systems thinking for a couple of years by then yeah that's amazing because I will say at least in my experience I had a psychology undergraduate degree and um I knew that I was really interested in interpersonal studies and family systems but I wouldn't say that I had the systemic lens until I really went into grad school Mm. and so that's neat that you were able to have that in your undergraduate experience yeah we I don't think we knew how lucky we were but yeah it was it was very good that's awesome and tell me you know kind of diving into getting to know you a little bit more as a therapist um, tell me more about what I call your worst or one of your most learning experiences in mm. therapy. I'm going to go right to the, right to the depth of it. Right, right um, into it. You know, I, in thinking about, about that, I don't know that any one particular memory really comes to mind, but, you know, we know as, as, as MFTs, I mean, we're trained for that interventive moment and we're trained, you know, to get that, that good rapport and that, and, and to join first, um, cause people can't go there with you. They won't go there with you. Mm-hmm. Um, if they don't have that trust for you and that relationship with you. And I think the, the worst or the most humbling moments are when you think you've got that and they're not ready mm-hmm. or they're not ready to do it with you. I mean, either they you know, you have to be ready, willing, and able. We were taught that yeah. in school, but, um, I think those humbling moments are when I thought we were ready and, and that, that we could kind of take that leap and either they won't, wouldn't, you know, weren't able to go there with me or they weren't able to go there at all. Right. Right. And that's such a good point because I think as therapists, we can have these great ideas about where we want to go and what they need in their life. And if only they did this. And then if we're letting that lead our session versus, really building that relationship and being in that moment with them where they're at and meeting them. Um, yeah, we miss the whole thing and we just, we're trying to push our own agendas. And so, yeah, I love that. You're right. As MFTs were taught that self as a therapist to really, mm-hmm. you know, kind of stand back and meet people where they are. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense to me. So we'll kind of flip the script a little bit. Um, you know, what would be a moment in therapy that was a really good moment for you or something that you feel like was maybe even like one of those teaching aha moments where you did something and you're like, yes, that was, that was important work that I just did. And I just learned something about, you know, this work. Yeah. Um, when I think about kind of like those yeah, maybe the opposite are those those best moments. I mean, obviously we all love it when you're you're ready to to graduate. You know, they're successfully terminating. Mm-hmm. I always thought that was an interesting the the word choice. I'm like, I use graduate, <laughs> successfully terminate. Just sounds like I don't know yeah. ex- executing anybody here. Right. Um, but I had a moment recently when um I'd been working with a an adolescent girl for oh quite a while, and we were getting 
you know, close to graduation. Um, and she was definitely ready. She felt like we, she'd accomplished her goals. Mom was a little more tentative. I was trying to honor where each of them were at, but there was this moment in, in session, um, where she basically is, is telling her mother what therapy is and mocking me as she does it, you know, in a way that only a, you know, a adolescent girl can do. Um, but she's telling her mom, well, this is what therapy is. She's like, and she's pretending to be me and, and sits up in her chair and she says, you have to, to love the goal of life is to love yourself and others, but to love others, you got to love yourself first. And if you don't, then this is how we're, what we're going to do about it. Da, 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 da. You know, and she's oh, just kind goodness. of, but it was just this cute moment of going, okay, she doesn't need me. She's got that script in her head of, of what, of what she needs to do. And, and, um, and it was just kind of a, kind of a beautiful thing of, of having her, um, cause I love the narrative work and having her repeat that story mm-hmm. and, and I, and kind of retyped out a quote. Um, and while I was, and I had had something pulled up on my computer. So it was kind of this mountain in the background. And then I, so I typed her quote and with her name and, and age on it mm-hmm. and printed out and gave it and sent it home with her mm-hmm. of just going, these are your words. Mm-hmm. You don't need my words. These are your words and mm-hmm. and your story and and where you're going from here. And if you guys need me, you'll come back. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, I wish you well. Um, but I don't know. I've learned. There's so many different moments um, over the years of, of clients really just teaching me and educating me about their life, right. and in being curious and always being the student. God, you just learn so much more than when you think you got to be the knower. Yes. Yep. When your ego's in check. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, that totally makes a lot of sense to me. That's really neat. I, you know, I've never sent like a quote home with a, um, with a client, but to put their own words and to kind of create that memento or moment. Yeah. Is memento the right word? Memento for them is just, that's beautiful. Like I hear different like ways that therapists do that. And I'm always like, idea for me to put in my back pocket for yeah for it just kind of happened because I had I don't know I'd typed some other inspirational quote out on this mountain scene and I still had it kind of I knew I had that where I could access it quickly and so I just popped over to my computer and and changed the words and you know save as whatever mm-hmm. um and she, she was just I don't know I yeah. think she was really it was a good moment for her to go, mom, look, these are my words. Yeah. I'm okay. I am ready. Wow. And just, yeah, just that validation to her and like to see it, you know? Yeah, no, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so we're going to get a little silly now okay. <laughs> as, I'm, as I am curious as to what your spirit animal is. Hmm. You know, I was thinking about that because um, I don't know. I suppose it's much like your favorite color when you're a kid. It might change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I've got to pick one now, I would say it has kind of at least maybe the last decade of my life, it's probably been a tigress. A tigress? Yeah. Tell me more. Um, well, <laughs> I... Uh, was probably very different than I am now as a kid. I was 
pretty shy, pretty timid, um, sassy in my own right, but usually just in my own head. Nobody got to hear those comments <laughs> except for me or maybe people that I was really close to. Um, but it was just kind of growing through and pushing through some of that toxic anxiety to real growth. And um, I don't know, I just kind of, I've through my own therapeutic work, um, latched on to that image of a, of a tiger um, and, you know, feeling, I mean, they're often solitary. They're often alone other than when they're um, having cubs or whatever. But it's this idea that, and big cats to, to a lot of Native American traditions, um, big cats are, are, are a leader. Um, and leadership's always a little bit lonely. Um, but it, it doesn't have to be lonely, right? So there's like solitude and, and there's finding that, that combination between connection and, um, and then that, you know, that playfulness, but, but that kind of that fierce strength as well. Um, and there's probably a, a much longer story to it, but I actually ended up after doing some of my own work, um, getting a tattoo as a therapeutic anchor and I ended up cool. with an orange tiger mm-hmm. <laughs> that's awesome do you mind sharing where it is or? um so it's on my core okay. um because you know I'm like I said it was a therapeutic anchor so there was yeah. deep meaning about being on my core and being on the left which is often considered the feminine side and mm. um the movement and I don't know that's so cool that's neat yeah, I know a lot of people use, like, they do have their own therapeutic anchors, and they've used um, tattoo and art as that expression, and um, it's been something I've thought about and haven't really pulled the trigger on, but I definitely <laughs> think at some point I probably will once I gather the courage, but um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's beautiful to hear people's story and, you know, to well, put that in a art artistic way. Well, and that's the, the funniest thing about it is I was had done some work and was at some trainings and was talking about it and more joking about it, you know? And, and so as I'm joking, I allow myself to be creative and come up with all these reasons and what and how and what, you know, if I ever got one, which I wasn't going to. Um, but I come home to my husband and tell him about it. And he was like, Oh, that's hot. And I'm like, I'm not actually going to do it. You know? And then it, 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 you know, as I continued to, to do my own therapy, it progressed from there and, and I decided to get it. That's neat. That's cool. That's cool that it was, it wasn't really expected, but no, oh no, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) That's really neat. Well, we're going to go more into the meat of the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is kind of just an expansion on addictive behaviors, compulsions, shame, resilience, all of that stuff, Mm -hmm. um, because they're very much intertwined. And so the first question that I had for you is tell me more about your expanded definition of addiction. Because I know often when people think addiction, they, they immediately, well, they typically think of like drugs and alcohol and that sort of thing. So tell, tell me more about that expanded definition. Sure. So um, obviously I was, I was trained as an MFT um, first and practiced for several years. It was more of a kind of where I was working at the time and a, a leadership request that I pursue the LCAC mm-hmm. so I could um, help supervise that department. Um, and it was kind of a, a little bit begrudged, begrudging in the first, like, okay, I'll 
do it because you want me to. Um, but the more I, I got into it, the more, um, and I actually got into working with the clients and helping with some of the groups and, and kind of filling in and with other things or, or supervising the staff and t- processing cases, the more I was like, these are the same people. People are people are people. Um, and and I just began to really see, um, although sometimes it's easy for society and unfortunately even us as therapists to be a little judgy about addictions, mm-hmm. um, to realize, you know, that the little girl who who stumbles upon cutting or burning really isn't any different from the little girl who stumbles upon smoking or drinking. Right. It's the same often traumatized story. Um, and so I just, the more that I, I really got into the work and, and, and met the, the clients, the more that I realized um, how wrong I'd been before and how wrong so many of us, I think are, um, and, and, and began to just kind of have this bigger picture of, okay, well maybe I didn't drink, but I was, you know, overachiever perfectionist in school, or I was, you know, incredibly hard on myself or, you know, they took that substance, you know, versus the person who's comforting with sugar and hit, you know, and, and pop and soda, you know, yes, one is addictive, one is not, but there's a lot of health problems with both. And it's, you know, it's just kind of realizing, at least for me, I began to see addiction as any substance or behavior that we were using compulsively to not feel our pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the obvious ones, the illegal ones, you know, yeah. but beyond that, it, it, when you really see what's the motivation for the behavior or, or, or what, whatever the substances they're using, it, it could be anything from, from food to relationships, to sex, to being perfect, to work, being a workaholic to, um, yeah, I mean, really anything. Yeah. I think the workaholism one can be really tough in our specific, our particular culture here in the U S because it's, it's glorified. Mm -hmm. Workaholism is glorified and, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't realize they are numbing pain and trauma and things right. with their behaviors because we don't call them addictions or problems, you know? Right. Until it is. Until, Until it it's, is. you know, that workaholic is avoiding their home life and their family is falling apart. Then we realize it's a problem, but we may still not call it what it is yeah. unless they're ready to do that. Yeah. And it's tough because I could see how, you know, what I've observed working with families and seeing different parts of addictions and, and people numbing things is, um, it's almost, it's normalized. Like the dysfunction is normalized until you're right. Like until something devastating happens. And if something devastating doesn't happen, like it just kind of keeps going and they Mm kind of keep living in that family system of dysfunction, knowing that there's probably like kind of having that sense that something's a little off, but not really quite knowing what it is. Right. Or maybe even not knowing and just being like, I thought this was, it was normal to have this kind of relationship and these feelings and, um, yeah, continuing that cycle until somebody does have, I've seen workaholism, you know, be passed down. And then, you know, the next generation is they struggle with substances. Right. Right. Um, and I'm sure you've seen that a lot in your work too. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Or yeah. even with one person who, um, and we kind of spoke a little bit about this earlier, but, you know, they may struggle with one area and then you know, be able to stop in that area, but it, it just transfers to a different vice. Or they might have multiple issues. They may be struggling with alcohol, you know, a series of infidelity Mm -hmm. that, you know, some infidelity obviously isn't sexual addiction, but there's times that it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And you just run until you deal with the root of it or until that person is ready, willing, and able to deal with the root and the the pain underneath. They're probably just going to stumble upon maybe a a less harmful, but, you know, still unhealthy coping mechanism or, or way of dealing with life. Right. Right. It's very true. Yeah. And we see that in our, in the work that we've done and, um, it's, it's so true. Yeah. Where instead of healing that, they just go over and cross addict or, you know, use another way of, of coping with life. Um, and so I'm just curious, what would you think is something that is really misunderstood about addiction. I know you kind of covered some of that, but Mm -hmm. is there anything else that you feel like is misunderstood about addiction that you think would be important for therapists and non-therapists to know? Um, yeah, there, there's a piece, um, this piece about, you know, that it's just a choice or that it's a bad habit or that it's a moral defect. Um, you know, hopefully we've gotten past that, but I don't know that we always have. Um, like we mentioned, I mean, it might have just been what that person fell into, what they stumbled across that was the first time maybe they didn't feel horrible about themselves or, you know, they were able to not feel that horrible feeling and it, and so they kept doing it. Um, but much like with self-injury, we we try to help them to find healthier ways of coping, you know, where we or you know, or an eating disorder or whatever, which isn't my specialty, of course. But, you know, you try to help them deal with the underlying pain and find healthier ways of coping. Um, that's a lot of what I, I try to do with with addictions is um, whatever it is. Like I said, any substance or behavior, if it's a problem for them, it's a problem for them. So what can we do that's not a problem? What can we do that's a healthier way? What are some small ways that we can try to be healthier in your mind, body, and spirit? Because all of those work together or they all work against each other. Mm-hmm. That connection is, is, is just there. Um, and so, yeah, you know, definitely there are those times that someone might need to have an additional treatment or focus or on, you know, either inpatient or outpatient for the addiction issue. Um, But if they're ready, willing, and able, we want to we want to address the the past trauma mm-hmm. or the pain underneath, or sometimes even the ongoing trauma, because there's this idea of maybe the initial trauma that they got into the addictive behavior, but then often through that addiction and that rec, you know, there's a lot of recklessness and there's a lot of retrauma, you know, ongoing trauma. Yes. Um, that there's just a lot to process through, and then if they've gotten if they're married and have kids, then there's a lot of those issues. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably w- more where I focus. And then if they need the additional treatment, addiction treatment, then I refer out for that. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense to me. And you're, you're right. I think that 
a lot of people see it as being a choice, especially in, I feel like, the non-therapeutic or non-therapy population. Mm -hmm. A lot of my parents come in and um, are really angry at their teens for doing certain things. And, um, you know, they they say things like, just stop, or why can't they just do this or that? Um, And, yeah, not understanding that these behaviors are grounded in in trauma Mm -hmm. you know often these belief systems that are continuously being lived out in their life and potentially causing like what you're saying you know continuous trauma to even reinforce that you know original trauma is to you know yeah to in that shame spiral Mm -hmm. that just happens yes and so I you know not understanding that lens that you know we as therapists kind of get to see it's it can be really difficult sometimes to um because the fear yeah, is if, if we say it's not a choice or that it's not wrong, that they're going to be allowed to continue to do that. Well, no. Right. We, right. you know, we want to, we want to actually engage in treatment. We want to help them to heal. Um, but it's just that, that change of lens right? that trying to help people get past that. Um, and I think the, the, a lot of the science is helping us. Um, Dr. Gabor Mate, mm-hmm. um, who worked up in Canada, um, and has written several books, <laughs> It was, it's fascinating to, to kind of see, um, some of the research that I saw him quoting and I apologize, I don't have it in front of me, but, um, talking about, you know, just this, the different brain chemistry and how, um, you know, the opiate, you know, the opiates or the chemicals and, and that part of it, that has to do with the pleasure centers and that dopamine can just have to do with desire. And so you can actually, addiction can be separated out. You could be addicted to something you don't even like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. how messed up is that? Right, right. right. But it, but it's just how the sometimes how that trauma bond or how that how the brain chemicals work and and it can almost be more the rituals or the the you know the kind of the cycle of behavior leading up to the use or following the use could be just as addictive as the actual substance or behavior. So it, it's just amazing. The more that we're learning, um, the better I think we'll be able to help. And so I'm, I'm a big nerd and I'm just always trying to study and learn and, and read. And, um, when I'm driving, I've got audible on, like I, I just, um, I, I just feel like I can't, I, there's so much out there. There's so much to learn, um, to be able to help and, and, but it's just hard. The people are, are struggling so much and they're fighting themselves because they themselves have taken on the idea that I'm bad. Right. And I wouldn't, if I, I could just stop these things, other people just stop these things. Other people don't get addicted. Well, yeah. Other people have different brain chemistry and other people could have tried the same things that you tried and not got addicted. Right. That's the danger of it because we don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, there's so many different parts to it, like whether or not you have that genetic predisposition, whether or not you're in a certain situation, what, you know, resources or resilience resources you have. Like, you know, and again, I don't think people always, and they don't always understand the way their brain works when they're little too, because some of these things, you know, the trauma Mm -hmm. that they're working through now are things that happened when they had a little person brain, right? And the little person brain is not like an adult brain. And so we have to have empathy and grace for ourselves that we've created beliefs that we're probably still 
you know, trying to reconfigure and that are in our, ingrained in our bodies that mm-hmm. happened when we were little, little, and even sometimes in the womb and even before that. Sometimes we're looking at the the newest and latest in um, transgenerational trauma and how that shows mm. up in our genes, which right. is really, I, I'm with you that like, I like to see the science because I'm a very like in my head kind of person more naturally. Um, and I feel like sometimes it's helpful to show people stuff to, instead of like being like, oh, we have this theory. Right. right. But to be able to tangibly say, okay, like, because I'm a person who's it. like, okay, I don't want to hear your theories. Give me the research. <laughs> Show um, me how this works. And I mean, and sometimes that's actually to my detriment in ways because mm-hmm. I, I can be not as open-minded or um, see the truth because I'm so focused on seeing the tangibility of it. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm with you that I do like that. And I'm really excited that we live in an era where we're able to see a lot of that. And we're still, I mean, we still know so little, right? Right. That's like the sad part is like we know, we still are learning so much. Um, But I guess it's exciting too, because we get to see how that progresses. But yeah, we are lucky enough to be able to look at different things in the brain that have been, you know, theories for, for decades and Mm -hmm. maybe even hundreds of years, really. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot out there and a lot more and, um, you know, we were talking about about shame and the role that that plays in addiction and it, in um, in perfectionism. And um, I, like I said, I, I've been learning a lot from Dr. Gabor Mate and and reading um, Brene Brown's work on shame resilience. Yes, I love her. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Everybody used to make fun of me and my cohort because I like had a crush on Brene Brown. There'd be like. You know, fangirl Jenny over here, always quoting Brene Brown, but I love well, her work. Well, you know, love it. if you're going to be a fan, fangirl for somebody, she's a she's good a, one. She's a good one. Um, <laughs> so one of her, one of her quotes um, that, that just hit me, and I, I think I threw it up on Facebook, I just couldn't help myself, was when she said, you know, wherever perfectionism is driving, shame is riding shotgun. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, you know, just like, amen, sister. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it is. And I think that's probably true wherever addiction is driving. Shame is riding shotgun. Mm-hmm. It's, there's just so much um, that we're learning about, about shame um, and, and how that, that's a kind of a relational emotion. And that's often, um, and Dr. Ariel Schwartz kind of talked about how that's often shame comes about as a positive emotion gets thwarted as you're reaching out to in love and connection and that's rejected. All that shame response is just huge. And and rather than guilt that says, you know, I've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. Shame is I am wrong. Mm -hmm. Like it's just to the core. And, and that's what I, I see so much in my people that have struggled with addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, is there is that deep shame and often we trace it back to two and three years old, you know, when something happened or, you know, and, and often it, it wasn't even maybe something their parents intended, mm-hmm. but you know, it just trauma happens, big trauma, little trauma. Um, and sometimes little trauma continues to grow or over time it, you know, it's, it becomes complex and chronic and, um, and, Brene Brown again was like, you know, the antidote to shame is empathy. And I was like, that's why therapy works. 
you know, because for the first time, maybe in their life, somebody comes in and says, um, and shows, and shows them empathy Mm -hmm. and says, yeah, maybe it did something bad, but you are not bad. Yes. Yes. And I think the experience of them feeling like they can even share to somebody who is emotionally safe, or at least Mm -hmm. home therapists are emotionally safe. Um, yeah, them even just experiencing somebody listening to them and hearing them and not being um, afraid of them, disgusted by them, reactive to them, mm-hmm. avoidant of them, to embrace, to be th- there with them, with all of their stuff, all their parts. Yep. So healing, so healing. I know, like, even in my own therapy journey, you know, going back into when I was a teenager and you know, forced into it originally. Um, I think that was a very surprising thing for me too. Cause I was like, I'm going to tell her some stuff and she's not going to be able to handle it. And I will mm. get that, you know, my, my brain was already in that narrative that like, she's going to reject me or like, this will be too much or too whatever, right. you know, and I'd share it and they were like, okay, tell me more, like help me understand. Right. And I'm like, wait, what? Like you actually are, <laughs> Like I can say these things and talk with you about it and have a conversation and you don't see me as this horrible, icky person that like my shame is telling me I am, you know? Right. And so, yeah, it can be such a, a healing experience. So you're talking about perfectionism, perfectionism and shame being, um, related to addiction. Um, could you tell me more, do you see more of a connection with perfectionism or is it a little bit different like is there a are you do you notice a pattern of that with addiction or what does that look like for you um in the sense of if you kind of uh, tweak the definition of perfectionism to be kind of this all or nothing or black and white thinking um is very much a addictive type thinking um, when you, you know, dismiss all the positives and you only notice the flaw and you focus on that, um, that is very, very black and white, very, um, and that, yeah, very much goes in line with addiction. It's, oh, I, I slipped up. I, you know, I, whether it's food, I, you know, I, I had an Oreo, I might as well eat the whole box mm-hmm. or, you know, or if it's, uh, gosh, I, you know, I took a sip of that beer. I guess I might as well get plastered now. Mm-hmm. Um, they they do tend to coincide. Um, and I, you know, as a recovering perfectionist, um, kind of laugh because I didn't, it was only after I was a therapist that I even realized that was a, not a good thing. Um, I thought that being a perfectionist was what made me do so well and how I got through school and how I got through grad school with not one, but two babies in the course of the program. Um, it was only afterwards when I was in private practice and I was, you know, still building my caseload and had some time and was doing a lot of reading, reading and, and I'm like, Oh, there's some studies on perfectionism. Hmm. Let me see what this says. And, and, and then was just blindsided when it's talking about it being a bad thing. And I'm like, what, (laughs) what, this is my whole, how I cope with life. Okay. This is not good. Hmm. Interesting. Let me see what, and I love research. So I'm like, all right. Let me see what this says. And it's like, okay, so perfectionism, you know, tends to go along with feelings of frustration, check, Mm -hmm. procrastination, 
check <laughs> and feeling like a failure. Crap. <laughs> um, check, check, check for Lisa. Um, and then going on to read, and it's talking about, you know, perfectionism when it's paired with a need for approval is a recipe for depression. And I'm like, ah, crap. <laughs> You're like, all of this is making a lot of sense. This is making Dang way it. more sense than I want it to right now. Um, and so then kind of realizing, okay, if this is a bad thing, what do I do with that? Yeah. And, and really, that was kind of part of that time frame when I started doing my own work and kind of figuring out what did I need to let go of and what did I need to realize was mine and how could I be my best self without beating myself up all the time yeah yeah letting the perfectionism be the thing you feel that fuels it or drives you to be your best self and it's it's and realizing it wasn't that wasn't what made me best that was what made me anxious and depressed right I, I I definitely remember having my own experiences with like feeling like they were almost like the opposite and like or contradictory I was like no this is what this is what makes me good and this is what Mm -hmm. makes me um get stuff done and this is what makes me this or that or you know and if I if I give this up am I just going to become this huge you know couch potato that doesn't do anything and is depressed right and And like it was like such the opposite yes and so um yeah it's been interesting in my own journey of like having to rewrite that story Mm -hmm. of my own of, Mm -hmm. of trusting that I don't have to be super hard on myself to get stuff done and I don't have to be um I don't have to be perfect and it's okay like the okayness of that like has been like just a different experience for me and um even practicing like good enough right like and just Mm -hmm. like because for me I know that some of my hiccups are you know even projects like this podcast like it would be like oh, I'm not going to take this on unless, like, I for sure I'm going to be able to do it in a way that, like, I'll release it on the same day every time and have great editing and, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll only sound great all the time and never say um, which I never do. Um, There you go. (laughs) And so it's, like, one of those things where I, I, I almost had to, like, give myself, like, a talk about it beforehand and, and reiterate, like, this isn't, that's not the point of this. The point of this isn't for Jenny to be perfect and show how awesome she is. That is not the point of this. And, you know, to get out of my own way of doing work, like good work and like Mm -hmm. sharing things and growing and experiencing things. But yeah, it's funny how like perfectionism like tells you you're going to do, like it's going to make you better, but really it gets in the way of you actually taking risks and doing things because I would have like struggling with perfectionism I never would have you know put myself out there vulnerability right (laughs) Right. like I I wouldn't be putting myself out there as much because of those fears and yeah the pressure I put Mm -hmm. on myself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely and so I you know that was that's you know been probably 10 years ago now but I still laugh that I'm a recovering perfectionist and <laughs> and every once in a while it kind of gets me particularly when the stress comes along yes. um and you know you start to feel a little insecure and then oh then it then it comes back with like a force but um kept, you know being able to catch it and go wait no what do I want to do what's most important and kind of just I don't know trying to find that balance and it's an ongoing you know adjustment and journey and and just kind of you know tweaking if I get a little bit too far one way or the other um but yeah definitely 
definitely a learning. And and there's more research on it, too. I mean, I was just reading something again the other day, and that might have been Dr. Ariel Schwartz was talking about, you know, that perfectionism often comes from early childhood experiences of emotional abuse or neglect or or trauma things. And it's, you know, this idea that the kids don't stop loving their caregivers. They stop loving themselves when they're abused mm. um, or feeling like, you know, it's not that mommy's bad. I'm bad. Right. Um, you know, or whoever, um, whoever that, you know, that abuse or neglect, wherever that's coming from, um, they take it on the self because, you know, somehow we feel like we can control that. Mm-hmm. Even our subconscious that I can't change them, but if I was just better, and if I didn't make any mistakes, there would be nothing for them to criticize. Well, that's not how abuse works. <laughs> right. No, it, it doesn't work um, that way. Or even yes. with, you know, the bullies in school, you know, or kids are just, you know, even if it's not full on bullying, but kids just kind of pick on each other mm-hmm. and you're either, you know, you're too short, you're too tall, you're too thin, you're too fat, you're too dumb, you're too smart. You know, you're it's just, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It, you know, there's, there's, and it's kind of, and it's, I think worse for some of those kids who've been through some emotional abuse or, or trauma because, you know, we know their attachment is struggling most likely if, 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 if it was in that, you know, the parental relationship and, you know, you read, about attachment and it's talking about, you know, with, with some of that insecure attachment, you kind of wince at the world and the world winces back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's probably Siegel. I'm bad about quoting things and I'm not sure exactly where I got it, <laughs> no, but, but it's, um, it's all really important to talk about but it was yeah. just realizing, Oh, that explains a lot of middle school crap. <laughs> like I didn't like me or know me. So how could anyone else like me or know me? Right. Or even, I mean, I still see that in my adult clients that are struggling with, with dating, but mm. their viewpoint, they're like so scared of themselves and already like, they're already rejecting themselves before they put themselves out there. And so they don't even realize that the energy they're even sending off or the right. way that they behave is telling people don't enter, don't right. come here. So that secondary attachment is, mm-hmm. you know, struggling as well yes. as an adult. Yes. And, you know, I will say for, um, for my own journey in perfectionism, I had a period of time where like, I felt like I was very successful at being perfect. And that was like the start of my eating disorder. Mm. Um, and you know, the sad part is it actually did what I wanted it to do in a way, because I was trying to protect myself from criticism. I was trying to protect myself from shame. And as I, made myself smaller in so many different ways, figuratively and physically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I never complained and I never, you know, I made A's and I attended everything with my church and I was, you know, perfect, quote unquote. I have air quotes right now. Um, I didn't get as much grief. And, you know, and it was weird because at the time that had like that reinforced my perfectionism and shame and, and like everything does. I was doing. So I actually was like, I'm nailing this. Um, but what I didn't realize over time was I completely lost me. Mm-hmm. I no longer had a voice. I no longer l- knew what I even liked. I no longer, um, felt like I could, I, I felt like I was apologizing for my existence in a way. And, and part of that was the figurative, like losing myself. Right. And that came, that stemmed from my own trauma, mm-hmm. belief system, shame, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, like I think the tricky part is it can be seductive in the way that for some people it works for a little while and it helps and the ways they're trying to have it help, but it, in the end they're actually 
like losing themselves and hurting themselves. And, um, Jenny, I could argue that with any addiction. Yeah. Why would they do it twice if it wasn't (laughs) effective the first time? (laughs) Right. It's because it was effective. Even if it did work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people understand that either, right? That haven't maybe struggled with that specific addiction. Like, you know, I hear people talk about, well, like, why would they do that? Or self-harm. I hear a lot of that right. from parents. Like, why would they do that? And I'm like, there's something about it that is helpful, protective, useful. Um, it's not the like they just woke they up found. one day. Yeah. And they're like, hey, I'm just going to decide to cut myself today. That's Because you sure wouldn't case. do it twice if there wasn't a benefit. That's true. That's true. I, you know, (laughs) probably, I mean, it's funny because like, it's not like this is a big deal or anything, but I remember trying cigarettes like for like a week or two Mm -hmm. and like totally, it just, for whatever reason for me did not fit. Like I just felt really silly and like I could, but I could see how like if I were in a predisposition and like had all the stars aligned or whatever, like I could still be smoking cigarettes, but luckily like for whatever reason, it didn't do anything for me. Right. You know, and I think that that's if we are able to know that like any person is vulnerable to that mm. sort of thing. It's not like it's not people that are unintelligent. It's not people no. that are impoverished. It's not people that um, don't have self-control or morals. No more than depression or anxiety. You know, it doesn't know race, class or creed. True. You know, we, it you know, it it hits us just the same. Um, and, you know, I. Like I said, probably when as I worked with clients that were struggling, I can think of a client, um, severe, severe case um, that had struggled with meth and other things. At one point was even dealing, um, kind of lucky to be alive. Kind of, he even would talk about how it was surprised him how much brain function he had for all the drugs that he had done in his life. And, and you know, and, and one, because he had struggled for so long and, and, you know, it, it was one of those things that not a lot of people wanted to work with him, but I was just intrigued. Um, and you know, as I got to know him and he got to trust me and, and actually be, be honest with me about his story, you know, it goes back to a horrible, horrible poverty, um, a variety of factors, but horrible poverty and, um, issues with the family and, but when he was five years old, he was out mowing the grass. So let's think about that for a minute. A five-year-old running the lawnmower. Mm. Um, but something wasn't working right, and so he took off the gas tank, and he accidentally huffed the gas. Mm. And I, I think it knocked him out. But what he remembers when he woke up is that that was the first time he f- he could he found something that numbed him out. And so he and I had this whole conversation because he was like, what kind of a horrible person, you know, starts huffing gas at five. And I'm like, what's going on in a five-year-old's life that you would do it once, but repeatedly, Mm -hmm. right? Like the first time was an accident, but you needed to numb out your life so bad that you would huff gasoline as a five-year-old little boy out cutting grass, you know? And so it just kind of flipped the script for me around addictions and and realizing these are hurting these are hurting people hurting little boys and girls that grew up knowing no different and everyone has told them they're bad and they believe it right yeah 
And I think it can also be hard, and I don't know if you can speak to this, but sometimes I'll get um, families in the room or people have the story that, you know, my childhood was perfect and we never wanted for anything. And you know, that's I the client saying that mm-hmm. I shouldn't. Liar. Be, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know that there. Well, and there's there's that intergenerational transmission of trauma and the stuff that I mean. I think again. I think a lot of people have that misconception that you know there. In some cases, it's very um, what I would call more um, identifiable trauma, but then there's a lot of invisible trauma that we Mm -hmm. don't really talk about as a culture. And so they're like, well, I was fed. My parents didn't hit me, like blah, blah, blah. Like I shouldn't be the should word, right? The shame. I shouldn't be depressed. I shouldn't be struggling with the things that I do. It's, again, going into that shame identity, it's Mm -hmm. me. It's not, you know, but... But as you unravel it, I mean, as we work with And hopefully clients, that person's willing to unravel that over time. But yes. if they can't go there, they may not be ready. Well, and it, it also, um, with one system, it was really interesting because it almost seemed to be like if they were to admit that stuff, it would be disloyalty to their family, right? Oh, 100%. And, and their family was very defensive and like, we didn't do anything wrong. And, you know, it's it's very interesting to see those dynamics so again, play out. shame and secrecy drive drive addictions yes so talked about yeah all those unspoken rules so even if it wasn't overt abuse or trauma there was this sense of um that we you know that they these rules around don't need anything Mm -hmm. um you know or don't tell you know that that they had to be perfect maybe or that there was an, an illusion they had to live up to that they they couldn't and then, yeah, then they stumbled upon something that helped them feel better yes, temporarily, and they kept doing it Yep. until it destroyed their life. Yes. No, I, I appreciate that we're talking about all these things but because, yeah, there's so many different ways and avenues and um, ways that this looks, right, that mm-hmm. this could happen. And I think that it's so important that we are, as clinicians and humans, um, open-minded to understanding that addiction can really happen to any person. Um, and you know, in different ways we were kind of talking about this earlier, we all have our, our stuff that we're recovering from. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's so important to kind of show the different ways that are maybe stories that people don't hear because they're not always, um, they don't have the same exposure to Mm -hmm. addiction as other people might have. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'm going to move along into sure. our last four. Okay. And the first question is, what is the thing you wish you knew when you first started? Um, I would say probably, and they might do it differently now. Um, I wish there would have been probably more encouragement to do your work. Like if you've never been in therapy, go be in therapy because All of us have our issues. And I remember Brenda Harvey Smith, you know, she was one of my teachers and she was my post-grad soup. Um, She would say, you know, nobody gets through childhood without baggage. If it's not your parents, it's the bullies at school. And there's a lot of truth to that. Even if you only went for a few sessions, we all have stuff that we need to work on. And it's, it's hard to go to the depths with the client if you are too afraid to go to your own depths. Amen to that. 
yeah. Um, and I just, I've learned that probably, um, well, I, I had to, um, you know, shortly after a couple years after school started doing my own work, had never done it before and, um, have continued on and off over the years, um, and have no shame about it anymore. I'm like, mental health is just as important as physical. If I don't apologize for going to the doctor or taking my kid to the doctor, I'm not going to apologize about going to therapy. No, not at all. And I think it's practicing what we preach, right? Mm -hmm. I think it honestly builds rapport with people for them to know, like, you actually do work too. You're actually still, because I mean, we will never arrive. We don't arrive and then we're done with our work. Like we're constantly growing as humans and you know, you mentioned earlier, like you, when you get stressed out, you'll tend to go into certain spaces. Yeah. I mean, we, with we fall back into, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I mean, we all have the stress threshold. And so it's important that we're able to know ourselves and our patterns. Like I have patterns too, that I definitely right. perfectionism is one of them, um, that I fall into when I'm stressed as well. And I reach that threshold. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. We absolutely have to continuously do our yeah. own work and keep doing our own work it's part of our own healing and, and part of being able to walk with people on their journey absolutely absolutely so what would be a psychology or therapy book that you would recommend to therapist or non-therapist oh man or you could have two different ones sometimes people have two different ones mm-hmm. like this is for therapists this is for you know i i'm just a huge fan of reading and, and getting more information um and so I guess I would recommend whatever area you're in, um, you know, if, if couples is, is what you want to learn more about, you know, my go-to is Gottman. Mm-hmm. I love his work. Of course, mm-hmm. he's got all the research to back it up, right? Um, true. But when we're talking about raising kids, um, I, I really appreciate um, The Whole Brain Child and, and Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson um, and God, there's, there's just so, there's so much out there and we're in a time in history where, you know, you can get books on audible or you can, you know, listen to Ted talks or hear different podcasts. And there's, it's feel like the more that we know, the better off we are going to be as individuals and, and to be able to help. Um, certainly, you know, we want to pay attention to who we're listening to. Do they, you know, what's their background? Do they know their stuff? Right. I'm not talking about. Dr. Phil, sorry to anybody who loves Dr. <laughs> Phil, but, um, got I mean, a doctor by his name, but that is not, Oh <laughs> man, don't get me started. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, I mean, God, Brene Brown's work. We, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about Dan Siegel's, um, John Gottman, their, their Institute is still, you know, putting out together so many incredible programs and, um, so yeah, pay attention to the research, but some of those authors, you can't go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great, great names. Um, And then do you have a quote or words that resonate for you or meaningful for you? Or I say favorite quote, but I feel like sometimes that puts a little too much pressure on it. I'm sure there's a (laughs) lot of different things that you're like, this is a great quote. Um, But is there anything that's been on your heart and mind lately? Um, Well, I quoted Brene earlier. So, Mm -hmm. um, Honestly, though, what what really has hit me, not just in couples work, is, and I think it's in his Seven Principles book, John Gottman, just makes a, a brief statement, but it's so profound. Of It's like, if a person feels misunderstood, 
disliked or unappreciated. They are incapable of change. Mm. And I think about that with husband and wives, Mm -hmm. you know, who are so much trying to change each other, at least before they come in the office. Um, Or parents and kids. Or even from therapist to client, or or when I you know used to supervise case managers, it was you know, and obviously they were at a different education level. But it's like if you don't like them, you can't help them. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. and and I think about that in my own marriage. You know, if if I don't feel understood and appreciated and and liked, it's hard to take down the armor, yeah, and be vulnerable and be you know creative in our problem solving. Um, and so, yeah, I can't go wrong with Gottman. So good. That's, yeah, that's great. I even, you know, I don't know if Dr. Rathbun said this during your time at Friends, but he, he has this quote that's like, if you can't find one thing that you don't like about your client, you shouldn't be seeing them. If you can't find one thing that you, you like. you can't find one thing, right? And it's, it's he just did like, tell us that. Yeah, and it's important that you at least find one thing. And that's resonated for me. Um, not, I mean... I don't know. I tend to, I feel like I tend to usually find things I like about people, but you know, every now and then I struggle with that too. Um, but I really, that resonated for me as like one of those things, like you've got to be able to like the people that you're working with mm-hmm. and find something. Because they'll feel it if you don't. It. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have that, that we feel that energy and that trust and I don't know there's so much of that is just kind of, I don't know, it's on a on a physical level, like on a energy level of some kind. Right. That we can't even, yeah. Put language to Mm -hmm. just feel it. That's true. And, and usually that's where our self of the therapist comes in and we got to be like, where is this, my stuff coming up where I'm like, you know, feeling like I don't want to, you know, work with this client or resistance Mm -hmm. or whatever Mm -hmm. is going on with my own stuff. Um, yeah, so true. And you know, my last question is what's the question that I didn't ask that you feel like would be important that we covered or something I might've missed. Um, because I don't always know all the right questions to ask, you know? Sure. Sure. Um, so one thing that did kind of come to mind and we alluded to this a little bit earlier, maybe before we started recording was just the, you know, we talk so much about the mind and body connection, but for me, the missing link in so many ways is that mind, body, spirit. Mm. And that, um, the role of spirituality and treatment. And that's maybe kind of a tricky thing. Um, but if I take it down to its basics, it's, we got to ask those as existential questions of, yes. you know, where's this person at what, you know, what do they believe about life and death and what do they believe about life after death or purpose and meaning? Um, that is a spirituality, you know, take, even take religion out of it. It's, you know, what do we do with that madness in our soul? Mm-hmm. Because life is hard. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, sometimes marriage feels harder because you're doing life together. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's why we have a job. I don't know. But <laughs> um, that, and, and it was, again, back at, back at Friends, it's, um, I remember talking, and I think it was Duke University that had done some research and found that the number one factor in health and long life was a spiritual awareness. And so that kind of opened a door for me to go, okay, even in a secular setting, even in community mental health, I got to ask people about spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, because whether we directly acknowledge it or not, it matters. Um, and sometimes it affects us more when we don't acknowledge it. 
because that's maybe the deeper pain or the deeper anxiety is those sacred or existential things that they're not dealing with or not coping with or, you know, struggling to make sense of in their lives. Um, and so that's maybe part of what also drew me to where I'm at now at Catholic Charities. Obviously, you don't have to be Catholic to work there or, or even or to be a client. Um, but a lot of people are coming there because they're wanting that faith base. Um, and so it, for me, it's been a, a really beautiful year of bringing the best of science and the best of faith into the, into the same room. Mm. Um, and I don't know. I, the nerd in me gets a little giddy when it's like, something in science proves something that we've been something we knew to be true. And from a faith perspective, yes, something we you have know? faith in. And, and I just yeah. remember, well, truth is truth. Mm-hmm. And sometimes science has to catch up to mm-hmm. actually prove it. Well, right. And, right. And, and even that spirituality, like sometimes I even see that as like, or part of that being the space to hold questions, right. And to, mm. to be able to believe in things, right. That we don't see because, you know, we're not, we're never going to know the full hundred percent truth. Like that's just not, mm-hmm. at least I don't believe that's part of our experience. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't think that's science. Heaven. Is, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, I don't think science is going to be able to show us everything it is mm-hmm. that we need to know, but to have space for question marks, to have space for, um, faith, you know, and that's, that's part of our work too. Mm-hmm. Right. Because there are things, there are times where it's like, okay, we're not, we're not able to pinpoint this trauma for a person or pinpoint all the things or make all of the context make sense. But, um, we still know there's this thing there in this pool or this push. And, and sometimes it's like being able to let that be a question mark and understand the spiritual significance of it. Or even just having hope Mm -hmm. in the beginning when they feel like they have no hope. I mean, there's a, there's a spiritual aspect of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. I'm so glad that we were able to talk because I feel like there were so many things you said that I'm like, I, you know, I feel like I learned from you. I feel like I was oh, able I to say, that. you know, amen. And <laughs> we did and, a couple times, didn't you. we? Yeah. <laughs> so it was really neat to have that conversation because, you know, we haven't had a conversation before this. So like, no. it's really great to get to know you and other people in our community who are doing like similar good work and, um, yeah are passionate about ongoing learning. There's a lot of good things happening here in Wichita. Yes. We just need to like connect and learn more from each other. Cause mm-hmm. that's, and that's, you know, that's the point of this is how can we connect and reach and get to know each other a bit better. So cool. Thank yes, you thank so you. much. Yeah. Thanks for your time.